The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Hi, everyone. My name is Jennifer Jolly, and I am a friend of Snowbird. Our family is a friend of Snowbird. Um, I am a pastor's wife from Rome, Georgia. I have three teenage sons, 19, 17, and 16. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, We are an adoptive family, so our youngest um, is adopted. He looks like Moses. Um, So we have a good time in our house with three boys. Um, I'm also a fan of SWO, so anytime I get to publicly thank everyone who makes this ministry and Red Oak happen, I try to do that. Our children have grown up here, and Snowbird has been a pivotal part of their spiritual upbringing, and it is in their soul. It is in our soul as a family, and so to all of you who make this happen, whether you're seasonal or year-round or spouse of year-round employees, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart, truly. And I know other people join me in that as well, right? So I don't know if y'all can see, but I was so caught up in that beautiful song that I didn't realize my water bottle was leaking on my shirt. (laughs) So it won't bother me if it doesn't bother y'all. Sorry about that. Um, So when I'm looking out at y'all, I just, it looks to me like swans on the lake. And let me explain that. I'm not trying to be cliche or anything. But, but you know how swans, when you see them, they look like they're gliding, right? They look like they're at rest and just effortlessly gliding through the water. And underneath, their legs are going like this, right? And I know that y'all are sitting here, like, at rest and at peace. And for y'all to be here, y'all were doing like this, like, all week long and all day, right? So y'all, some of y'all are students, and you're trying to take tests early and finish papers early. And some of you are at work, and you're passing off your responsibilities to your coworker. You're like, can you please finish this? Here's my sub list. Here's all this stuff. You're giving, you're like, taking care of your dog, who's going to walk it, because you're going to be gone, and then all the kids, like you're laying out the pajamas, and writing down the simple suppers, beanie weenies, <laughs> frozen pizza, second shelf freezer, right, like you had to say, you have to stay where it is, right, um, and so I just, if you'll humor me for a minute, like if you'll just close your eyes, and take a deep breath, and exhale, And take another one, and exhale, and another one, and just keep breathing for a minute. And as you do, just kind of on purpose, switch your gears. Like we're switching from producing and doing to being this weekend. And from barking and talking and telling an instruction to listening and receiving, okay? Take another deep breath. And then just center your mind's attention and your heart's affection on the Lord. And let's pray together. Father, thank you for this weekend and this time to rest and just be and abide and listen and learn, Father. Ask that you speak to us this weekend. Ask that you give us sweet fellowship this weekend with you 
and with fellow believers. And Father, I ask that you be the wind in my sails tonight, for this week has been a week of winter. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so the theme for this weekend is fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to dive right in into Galatians 5, okay? So if y'all will turn to Galatians 5. And while you're turning there, we're going to talk a little minute. When we're approaching Scripture and study, we need to stop and consider the context of the Scripture that we're reading, lest we err on the side of taking it out of context and misapplying it. So we don't want to do that. So let's know a little bit about the background of what we're reading. So this um, book of Galatians is really a letter. It was written as a letter to be read in its entirety. It was written by Paul somewhere around 48 and to 55 AD. So not that far, not that many years past Christ. It was written to the churches where Paul had already preached in the region of Galatia, which is now modern day Turkey. So when you're trying to imagine it, imagine Turkey. The church here was predominantly Greek or non-Hebrew, non-Jewish origin. So they were Gentiles, like what I'm assuming might be most of us, many of us. And so why was Paul writing this letter? Paul was writing this letter because there was strife among them. Because there were many among them who were trying to assert that they, though being Gentile, needed to be circumcised to be complete in Christ or to be accepted by God or to be seen as a follower of Christ, as fully Christian. And this was a big deal because eventually even the likes of Peter and Barnabas had gotten so sucked into things um, that they were doing things like not eating with fellow believing Gentiles when other believing Jews from Jerusalem would come in to visit. And so there was enmity and strife amongst believers and what living out their Christianity was supposed to look like. So as we go through this letter, chapters 1 and 2, Paul is pretty much defending his position as one sent out by Christ as an apostle who is able to speak on such things. And in some of Paul's letters, you know, he'll give some greetings, some pleasantries, and then he kind of eases into his correction or his instruction and this one he comes in a little hot at the beginning so you can kind of see his tone is very strongly corrective from the beginning about this so this was a big deal to him and in chapters three to four he establishes and reminds them that salvation is through Christ alone to both Jew and Gentile and warns against backtracking and trying to adhere to the law and in chapters five through six he shows how the grace of the gospel leads to freedom and godly living and And it is in chapter 5 that we find our references to the fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to read that in its entirety together. So Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we, are, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I told you he came in hot, right? Like, that's strong. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Galatians 5, 1 through 15 gives us a quick summary of some of Paul's arguments from earlier in the letter. Reminders that we're not under the bondage of the law, that faith in Christ worked out through love is what brings our freedom and our salvation. Galatians 16 through 18 summarizes the lifelong epic battle inherent in the process of sanctification of the believer, that battle between the flesh and the spirit. And it is implied that neither list is necessarily exhaustive. So if you look at that again, at the end of the works of the flesh, he references and things like these. So there are more works of the flesh than just what's listed here. This is just a good starting point, right? And same with the fruit of the spirit. He says at the end of that, He reminds us against such things, there is no law. So there could be more fruit of the Spirit. This is what's listed here, right? Not exhaustive um, for either. So another thing that we need to look at and think and see in this is that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's singular fruit. Singular fruit. The fruit is the list, okay? And that kind of helps us think about it in a different way because sometimes you like to think or I like to think of the fruit of the spirit like a a fruit basket you know there's your orange and your banana and your apple and and I guess on any given day you could pick and choose which one you wanted to to utilize or not and so with a house full of three teenage boys I'm pretty low on patience some days so it could be a good excuse for me just to you know skip over that one so I asked my pastor husband, I was like, so is it, it's not, I know it's not a fruit basket, like it's not plural. Um, would it be more like a fruit salad, right? If I'm trying to kind of give an analogy. And he was like, no, because you can still p- pick out the bananas from the mandarin oranges, right? You can still kind of, he thought for a second, he was like, it'd be like a fruit smoothie, okay? All mixed together as one 
unit where you can't extract one thing from the other. So very singular, very intertwined, um, these aspects. And the reason is because the fruit of the Spirit is a character sketch of Christ. These are the things that Christ was, all of them in their entirety, right? And the fruit of the Spirit is a picture of what redeemed humanity would look like, should look like, could look like, right? Character sketch of Christ, that's beautiful. So the fruit of the Spirit is is Christ, and we know we are to be Christ-like, and the Spirit is our helper in being Christ-like. He would have us emulate Christ by following his leading and coaching, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. So let's go back and let's hone in on our epic battle for just a second. So Galatians 5, 16, and 17, Paul gives us the good news, and then he gives us the bad news, okay? So Galatians 5, 16, and 17, in verse 16, Paul leads with the solution. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And in verse 17, he presents us with the problem. For desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. And there it is. There's that lifelong battle, that tug of war, and pull between two desires of flesh and desires of the Spirit. And that defines our lifelong process as believers in sanctification, that process of learning to act and look more like Jesus, the process of building the skill set of obeying Jesus, and the Spirit impedes, stops, halts the work of the, the works of the flesh. But the flesh hinders, or is trying to hinder, the fruit of the Spirit. Does that make sense? That tongue and pull. So what do we mean? Let's, before we dive deeper, let's talk about our terms here. So what do we mean by the flesh? Have you ever noticed, like, in in Christian subculture, there are words we use often, and we kind of get it from context clues, but we don't really stop to define them kind of sometimes, right? So what is the flesh, okay? Is it sin, and is it the manifestations of sin and temptations in our lives? Yes, but it's a little bit more than that too. Is it our physical being, our body? Yes, but it's a little bit more than that too. It is the draw of our sin nature in our mind, our will, emotions, our physical body, and our actions. So Hebrew culture, the people, the Hebrew people, they had an understanding of, of people, of ourselves, as a, in, a, in a totality of being. They didn't separate our thoughts from our emotions, from our actions. Greeks, folks from Greece, that mindset, that Western culture is based on, they very much separated those aspects of humanity of this is how we think, this is how we feel, this is how we act. And you see that in our culture all the time. Like we go to the body doctor and even the body doctor has divisions. There's our heart doctor and our skin doctor and our stomach doctor, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then we go over here to talk about our emotions and our thoughts to a counselor, to a psychologist, right? We have a very divided sense of personhood in our culture because we're very Greek. But Hebrew people understood that totality of being. And so that flesh is that, that draw of the sin nature in all of those aspects of our being, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. Um, does that make sense? Okay. That, that pull toward that. What do we mean? Oh, sorry. Also this. Um, so it's that draw toward sin. But it's that also that draw toward 
saving ourselves, intervening, not waiting on the Lord, not trusting the Lord, but working things out for ourselves, right? Functional salvation sometimes it's referred to, okay? So what do we mean by the Spirit? So the Spirit is actually a who. He is a he. So we want to be careful not to call the Spirit it or that, right? The Spirit is literally the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected and was ascending back to the Father, he told his disciples that he is going to send another counselor like him of the same kind. The word he used was actually alas parakletos. So paraklete means helper, one who walks along beside. So he said, I'm sending you another helper, one who's going to walk along beside you, and he's going to be one like me, alas, not a, not a different kind like me, as me of the same kind. So from this scripture, we see there are two, to use a computer term, operating systems, right? There's the, the, the pull of the flesh, which is that work, that draw toward sin, that draw toward getting to God by our own efforts, by our own beliefs, or adding to the grace of the gospel, which was the issue for the church in Galatia. And we have that pull of the Spirit, which is working out in God's gift of grace in Christ to us, working out our salvation, following his lead, following the Spirit. And those two tensions between the two is our life, right? And it's brought up often in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So we're going to look at that in just a second. So that tension we see in various parts of the New Testament. We're just going to talk about a few. Okay, so one of them is Romans 7. 15 through 25. If you want to turn there real fast, we'll look at that together. My husband in a house full of boys calls this Paul's doo-doo chapter. <laughs> Paul's doo-doo chapter because he uses the word do a lot, do and don't, do and don't. So we'll see this. And we see through this Paul's struggle, his own struggle, with that draw toward the flesh and with sin. So he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is, my, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is, not, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I mean, he summed it up, didn't he? for us all, that draw towards sin. In other places in the New Testament, we see him writing about um, that draw toward the flesh to add to the gospel, okay? That's what was going on in Galatia. He writes about it um, in chapter 2, 11 through 14. He brings out how Peter and even Barnabas also struggled um, living in freedom from the law in Christ and how they dressed and ate and then also reverting back to rules-based religion when they were about to be with their Jewish friends. We see it in his responses to other churches in his writings and letters, um, and mentions of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit are a theme in Romans, too. So it's, it's in the New Testament. We also see it throughout the Old Testament, just not maybe as um, obvious. 
maybe. So Paul references just back in Galatians 4. So go back to Galatians. I'm going to still hang out in Galatians 5. But Galatians 4, 21 through 31, I'm not going to read it. But in that section, Paul references Hagar and Sarah. Remember them? They were the two women affiliated with Abraham. So Sarah was Abraham's wife. And Sarah and Abraham were given the promise from the Lord that they would have a child. They had been barren all of their marriage. They were given that promise, and then they waited for years, and then like decades. And eventually, Sarah tried to just take it into her own hands, and so she gave her, her maiden servant, Hagar, to Abraham to have a child with, so that it could be seen as theirs, it could be there, considered theirs. Um, therefore, she was taking things into her own hands, right? That functional salvation. And they had a child, Ishmael. So Abraham and Hagar had a child, Ishmael. Then later, Abraham and Sarah had a child, Isaac. And so Paul uses these two to refer to Hagar and Ishmael being the son of born of the flesh, representing that tendency that we have sometimes to rush ahead of God in those moments when we're lacking faith and we're lacking trust and kind of work things out ourselves. And we see how that went for them. Not very good, right? And then we see Sarah with Isaac, who Paul refers to as the son of the promise. And we see right here, y'all, we see some of those fruit of the Spirit of the Lord and of Jesus, because God's grace, his forgiveness, and his patience to still call Isaac the son of the promise, a son of faith, and a son of believing after the Ishmael incident, right? So, all through the Old Testament, though, we see both in the very real and physical sense between these two brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, there's constant tension. There's tension later on for generations between their tribes, like forever, right? Tension between the two. But we also see that as a representative of pattern, the pattern in Old Testament. So all through the Old Testament, through all the stories, you see the people of Israel struggle time and time again, vacillating between acting in obedience and faith, the Spirit, and then taking matters into their own hands and making arrangements for their own salvation and from the threats of the day, right? Golden calves and things of that nature, right? So you see that so clearly all through, ten- all through the Old Testament. And we see through the Old Testament the Lord's instructions and admonitions to them. And we see in his acts and in instructions um, how he wants us to handle that tension sometimes. But sometimes when we read these stories, we're missing the greater point because we're reading the Bible through a slightly humanistic lens. So we tend to focus on the poor, what's happening to the poor people involved rather than looking at what is the Lord doing, what is the Lord saying in this story. So a couple of examples. Hagar and Ishmael. Eventually, they are told they had to be set outside the camp, right? I mean, I think left at the side of the road. And we can tend to, tend to go, and I, I did forever. I was like, oh, poor woman, that is, that is a hard, that is rough. But he's showing us, like, cast out the tendencies of the flesh, right? 
Then you see things um, in instructions where he tells them not to intermarry, not the Jews weren't to intermarry with other nations, right? And you think, oh, that's sad. But <laughs> don't be in covenant with, with um, not align with, not to become, become one with tendencies of the flesh, right? That's what he's saying. When they would invade a land, this was a hard one. When they would invade a land and the Lord would tell them to wipe out all the inhabitants, that seemed harsh. That seemed brutal. But he's instructing, the instruction was to wipe out, wipe it out, wipe out the tendencies of the flesh, show no mercy in combating the draws of the flesh, right? So you see these themes, and um, lest we think that the struggle just applies to Israelites in the Old Testament or the new Christians in Galatia and Rome and Ephesus, we need to stop and realize our own tendencies are to do the same. So even though in Galatia the issue was adding circumcision to the gospel, and they were, they were trying to convince each other that they, to be fully Christian, to be fully seen as following Christ, to be fully embracing of all of that, that they had to suddenly become circumcised. And we look at that and we think, how foolish. Like, how would they ever have thought that you have to be circumcised to be a Christian? Like, I do not even get that. Right? We would never go. We would never think that. But we do it. We do it in Christian subcultures. We add things to the gospel and we, we, we make hoops that people have to jump through. Or we add elements to walking with Christ that, that are, act as badges to our spirituality or godliness. Right? We're not going to be exhaustive here, just like Paul wasn't exhaustive in his list. But a few things we tend to do. Um, we we tend to sometimes see school choice as a badge of our Christianity on a, on a scale. So people who send their kids to public school maybe aren't as Christian as those who send them to the private Christian school or homeschool or another private school. Or, you know, are you really saved if you didn't walk down the aisle? You know? Or you can't really worship if you're not dressed up. Like that's, I don't even... I don't even know how you would worship if you're not just so like the thing we 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 bat we're baffled at the notion of adding circumcision while completely glazing over the things that we do in modern Christianity right so we struggle as individuals with different ways and means of sin we struggle as church bodies as the church community or groups within church bodies with adding some requirements with what it means to be Christian and as a little sidebar here, uh, social media has not helped us as a, as a Christian culture. Uh, it has not. In fact, it has broadcast the church's underbelly of adding to the gospel, aided and embedded by a collection of likes and retweets. And I think Zach is going to get to talk to us tomorrow a little bit about that, so I'm looking forward to that one. So from all of that we see, all of this, we see the evidence of what Paul calls the works of the flesh, don't we? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry and sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. We might read this and think, we know better than to fall into sorcery and idolatry, orgy, sexual immorality. But if enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy doesn't about sum up American culture and sadly American Christian culture right now, I really don't know what does. And those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So in Galatians, Paul reminds us that this tension, this constant tug at pull is at work in us as individuals and sometimes in the midst of our collective bodies of believers. And now in our current situation, it presents across the collective of the church through social media posts, blogs, articles, podcasts. The din is deafening, and yet it's hard to recognize because it's often packaged as Bible studies and well-thought-out posts, a conversation-inducing Twitter thread, a flashy podcast, and we fail to see what it often ends up being and doing, additions to the gospel. So things we must do and believe or say in order to be thoroughly godly. Things we must do, believe, or say in order to be seen as Christian. Things we must believe, do, or say in order to be seen as conservative Christian. Things we must believe, do, or say in order to be seen as evangelical Christian. And the list goes on, right? So remember, Paul presents that problem in Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he also gives us a warning in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm, ladies. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery, even if it comes through well-meaning members of the church, which was what was happening in Galatia. Even if it comes through celebrity Christians. It happened in Galatia and Rome then. It happens in Rome, Georgia. It can happen in Andrews, North Carolina. It can happen in Charlotte or Raleigh or Atlanta or Plant City, Florida, wherever you're from, right? All through the Old Testament and New Testament, the Lord through his various mouthpieces gives us instructions on how to handle this tension. So that is good. So we can think of how to handle it in two ways offensive ways and defensive ways. So you have to forgive me for the slightly militaristic and sports-themed imagery there. It's just my world. I'm in a house full of boys and men, and it's just military documentaries and sports of every brand and size and shape. Um, my husband once said, we need a hobby. I was like, we have a hobby. We sit in stadiums, bleachers in stadiums and gyms across Northwest Georgia. That is our hobby fall, spring, and winter, like, whoo, so I'm inundated with offense and defense, okay, <laughs> so offense and defense are what we've got to think about when we're talking about how to handle this tension, so when we talk about defensive measures, we're talking about things that block and stop, right, block and stop, what are things we can do to block and stop, and then when we think about offensive measures, we're thinking about ways we can be proactive, ways we can advance, okay, um, at least that's my understanding of those two terms. <laughs> okay, so defensive measures, blocking and stopping. What are some of those? Well, one thing is cleaning out those fleshly desires. So one of the things that Paul um, alludes to there in Galatians 5, 9, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So one of the things we know about leaven and yeast is that by its nature, its purpose is to spread and grow and self-multiply, right? It's this self-multiplying process, and sin will self-multiply, and it will take over. And sin sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes in Scripture, um, leaven is, is used to refer to sin or flesh, okay? So when he's saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he's saying a little bit of, of fleshly desires of sin can leaven the whole bunch. It's going to multiply and take over. Now, one of the cool things in Old Testament imagery with leaven is found in the Passover ceremony. Have any of y'all done a Passover? It's super cool. If you ever get the chance to do it where they're explaining um, the gospel 
imagery in it, do. It's so cool. Okay, so one of the things with a Passover is the household, before they engage in the ceremony, one of the preparatory steps is that they take all leavened food out of the house and they clean it and they like they they do a deep clean of the kitchen and they're sweeping and they're getting it out so there'd be like all our cakes and pies and breads and carbs that we like right anything that's risen fluffy dough okay and so they're cleaning it out and so that's the image that we want to have in our mind when we're talking about our fleshly desires and sin nature we want to do what we can do to just do a deep clean get it cleaned out right so that's one thing cleaning it out Another thing, ooh, where am I, my notes? Okay, casting it out, cast it out. And I didn't mean for these to be alliterative, all of them C's, but they kind of ended up that way. So clean it out, cast it out, just like we saw sadly with Hagar and Ishmael. Sometimes it takes those extreme measures. And I don't say that lightly. It's very painful sometimes to cast out things that are associated with our sin or people that are associated with sin or people that are associated with our, our, our draws toward fleshly things. Like that's, that is painful, but it's necessary. And so he's saying cast, cast it out. The other one is crucify our flesh. And this is something, another thing we hear a lot in Christian um, lingo is crucify our flesh. And I'm like, yes, I am there for that. But, but what, what do we mean? What does that look like? I don't, I don't know that I really know that. We just hear crucify your flesh all the time, and, and yes, and we affirm it. So let's talk about that for a minute. And to do that, we need to talk about what crucifixion is. Crucifixion was a form of suffocation. So crucifixion was invented by the Persians and perfected um, by the Romans. And... It was a punishment reserved only for the most heinous of criminals and the hein most heinous of crimes. And if you were less heinous, you would be tied to the cross. And the most heinous would be nailed to the cross. And we know that our Savior was nailed to the cross, yet he had committed no sin, heinous or not, right? So, nailed to the cross, people who were on the cross were hanging there and the weight of their body was pressing in on their lungs and diaphragm and preventing them from breathing well. Eventually their legs would buckle or their legs would be broken. And when that happened, their arms would come out of their socket, putting that much more body weight on their lungs and their diaphragm, making it that much harder to breathe. And if they had anything left in them, they would try to push up with their legs just a little bit to take a, some semblance of a deep breath. Most of the time they had been tortured, so their back was open, and then doing that would brush up against that rough wood, causing more pain. They're bleeding out of all of their wounds, and their organs are slowly being deprived of oxygen. It's a slow and brutal suffocation. Our word excruciating comes from that it means out of the cross and I never did that till I knew that till I was preparing for this talk the word excruciating is literally out of the cross so when when we're told to crucify our flesh we're told to suffocate it and the suffocation is the re withholding or removal of, a, of the life source of oxygen 
So when Scripture is instructing us to crucify our flesh, the Lord through Scripture is literally saying to suffocate it, to suffocate our fleshly desires, to withhold the life source, to withhold the life source from sin, to withhold life source from trying to save ourselves instead of trusting him and his timing, to withhold the life source of trying to add to the gospel. Romans 13, 14 tells us, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. Provision is to see ahead and make a way for something. So the word provision has the word provide in it, provide, to see before, to see ahead, to see before. And so we women generally, most of the time, most of us, have provide superpowers. So most of the time, we're pretty used to seeing ahead of things and doing them, right? Did you do your homework? Did you walk the dog? Did you remember you have this tomorrow? Thinking ahead, what do I need to buy for Christmas? Birthdays, it's summer, Who, whose clothes need to be changed, right? Like, you know, we see ahead all the time. An example would be me, me taking the boys on an outing when they were little. Pro V-Day superpower says we can't go to the park without the bag that has the sippy cups and juice boxes, the extra snacks, the extra clothes, the diapers, the wipes, maybe some sunblock, those kind of things. My husband would take them to the park with one diaper and that little pack of wipes in his back pocket, and that was it, right? <laughs> like Pro V-Day superpowers is what we generally as women operate in in the day-to-day, and yet we, we shelve that ability sometimes when it comes to looking ahead, thinking ahead of what sin is crouching at our door, what tendencies to add to the gospel are crouching at our door, what tendencies to save ourselves and jump ahead of the Lord is crouching at our door, right? So, ladies, if you're dating someone and y'all know that y'all are being physically tempted, Pro V-Day superpower tells you, I can see ahead and I can see how this could end and we shouldn't end the date snuggled up on the couch, right? Or Pro V-Day superpowers, if we struggle with gossip and you know every time you go to this, this little women's meeting or this little mops meeting or whatever it is that we're going to end up gossiping and slandering people and all this, Pro V-Day superpowers tells you how much to be involved there or not, Right? If you struggle with arguing online, Pro V-Day Superpower says, maybe I take a break from that for a good long while. If, I, if you struggle with getting your self-worth and identity from perfectionistic tendencies, Pro V-Day Superpowers should limit what, what I say yes and no to, right? So those were defensive, blocking and stopping, okay? So we had... What do we have? We had clean it out, cast it out, and crucify it. Offensive measures of how we can be proactive, how we can be um, making a way for the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Paul gives us the solution in Galatians 5. He gives us four verbs, okay? Walk by the spirit. It's in Galatians 5, 16. And this is kind of the main one of the passage, the walk by the spirit. It's in the present tense continual, meaning it's really saying continually walk by the Spirit. Not just like today, 
are not from 10 to 12 today, but continually walk by the Spirit. It's also in the active voice, meaning that it's an intentional action on our part. It takes intention for us to choose to walk by the Spirit. And it's an imperative, meaning it's a command given from the Lord to us. So walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit in Galatians 5.18. Live by the Spirit in Galatians 5.25. And that's a continual living by the Spirit due to walking with and being led by. And keeping in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. So he tells us these four things to do in Galatians 5. Walk by, be led by, live by, and keep in step with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the one who is there to walk along beside us and help us, one who is like him, to, to coach and teach us and how to emulate Christ. And all of that assumes that we have to be in close proximity to him. We can't do any of those from a distance, right? So how do we do that? Through the cultivation of disciplines. So being in the word, reading and meditating on the word, to emulate Christ is to know him, and to know him, we need to read the word and read what the word says about him, right? Be in relationship with the Lord through prayer and listening. Sometimes we get caught up in prayer and just speaking up, 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 and we don't stop and listen, and that takes some cultivation and some practice, really, it takes practice to still our minds sometimes. Um, so try to practice the art of listening and being still. Training ourselves to hear his voice, that requires us being still and being quiet with silence and solitude. And sometimes as women, that is hard to find. So we have to take those moments, sometimes in the car when you're by yourself, just turn off the radio or whatever music you're listening to and just be still and quiet. And the shower is a good place, <laughs> right? I mean... We don't take it where we can find it, right? Um, so another way is to watch how many outside voices, even Christian ones, we're listening to. Because in today's culture, with so many different platforms and so many different voices speaking on different platforms, it can really get crowded. Um, what we're hearing can crowd out the, the voice of the Lord. It can crowd out the truth of what the Lord says about himself in Scripture versus what all these people are saying that the Lord is saying, right? Be in community with other believers. This is huge and crucial. And in today's COVID world, a little bit of a word of caution, technology has been a blessing during COVID. It's allowed some of us to, with medical needs to tune into church services. But through time, it can, the point of convenience um, can compromise community. And so... Let's not lean too much on the convenience factor and prevent ourselves from re-engaging in person with the body of Christ. Also, about being with other people. There may be seasons in life where you need to be somewhat selective in who you're being around and um, giving, just being with the Lord, people that the Lord has given you to disciple or who you're being discipled by or people that you are on mission with that might be um, the bulk of who you're around 
worship, not neglecting worship. So our individual daily worship and then our collective worship with our, with our body of believers that we are in covenant with. Following his instructions in scripture. Following his instructions in scripture. So he tells us, Galatians 5.16, do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't gratify the desires to sin. He tells us in 5.18, do not submit again to the law, to the flesh, to the bonds of what they say you have to be to be Christian. We're not under the law. Don't add to the gospel, he says. And then in Galatians 5.26, he says, do not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So when we walk by the Spirit, and we're led by the Spirit, and we live by the Spirit, and we keep in step with Him, and we're in close proximity with Him, we're listening, He will impede the works of the flesh. Right? And we will bear His fruit, and we will reflect His character. And so like a multifaceted diamond, you can't take one facet of a diamond away. We will reflect His light through the facets of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he promises us against such things there is no law. Okay? So let's pray together. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.